Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty Bible Church. My name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be speaking from verses 22 through 35. I'm going to pray for us first and then uh, jump into those verses. So let me pray for us. Uh, Father, would you give us ears that hear, eyes that can see, and hearts that are open to you? Father, do that by your spirit, I pray in in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a rule that all good stories, movies, novels, whatever have uh, your choice of storytelling is, one rule they must follow. Chekhov's gun. If in Act 1 you have a pistol hanging on the wall, then in the final act someone must fire it. Uh, It's a good rule, and one of the most overlooked but Christmas classic movies in history demonstrates this rule, the movie Gremlins. At the very beginning of the movie, Billy grabs and rattles the sword on the wall, and you wonder, why is there a sword on the wall of this otherwise peaceful house? Well, it's because these very cute creatures are going to start like threatening people's lives, and at the end of the movie, He needs that sword to kill a creature that small and cuddly. Uh, That may not be the best example, admittedly, but if you put something ominous in the beginning of a story, you have to explain it by the end. Maybe a better example would be the very beginning of the Harry Potter novels, you learn Harry's parents are dead. And by the end of the story, we must have the, the question answered, why, how? And if you get all the way to the end, it's a pretty dramatic answer. In Luke 2, this older gentleman named Simeon hangs a rifle on the wall. He says something pretty ominous in this passage. There's three things. That the the child, Mary's child, will cause the fall and rising of many in Israel... That when Mary sees this child's life play out, it will be like a sword piercing her soul. And that this child's going to reveal the thoughts from many hearts. Those are pretty ominous things. And up until this point, there's been nothing ominous in the Gospel of Luke. But now a little bit changes. And so we... We have to ask the question, okay, if, if Luke's giving us an ominous sign, if, if Simeon is hanging a rifle on the wall, well, that raises the question, well, who's going to shoot it? Who's going to get shot? And why? Now, that sounds like a really interesting sermon to me. And I hope it does to you, because that's the sermon you're going to get. So first, uh, who will do the shooting? What, what is this ominous thing Simeon is uh, referring to? Now, before we we answer that question, there are three main characters in this part of the narrative. There's Mary and Joseph, and there's Simeon. And Mary and Joseph, we read on the the front end, they are being meticulously obedient to the Lord. Mary's had a child, 
And when you have a firstborn son, you're to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to God to redeem that firstborn son back to yourself. So they're doing that. Just after having had a child, a, a long journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to offer a, a, an offering. And the offering that's named is the offering of, of someone who would be very poor. So these two young poor parents go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. The third character we learn about is, is Simeon. And Simeon, we are told, is in verse 25, righteous and devout. He's a good man. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That sounds important, and I'll come back to that. And that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And what we learn is is the Holy Spirit had told Simeon at some point in his life, before you die, you're going to see the Christ. You're going to see the Son of God, the Messiah. And so he's been coming year after year, day after day. We don't know how long. But he's been coming to the temple waiting to see the Messiah. Now that's the who of the passage, Mary and Joseph and Simeon. We also need to ask, where are we? And the answer is the temple. And that's important because important things always happen in the temple. Whenever you are in the temple in Luke's gospel, something's going to happen. Sort of like those of you who... Uh, we're blessed like me to grow up with the show Saved by the Bell. <laughs> Saved by the Bell, whenever a fight between friends was about to be ended or they were about to celebrate a major victory for their high school, Bayside, they always went to the Max. So when you're in the Max, the restaurant, something good's going to happen. That's a little bit too young of a reference for you. Think of Arnold's Diner in Happy Days. And I try to think of my own kids' reference, what they watch, and I, I don't have anything for today's, um, unfortunately. But when you're in the temple, something's going to happen. And when we're in the temple, two things always happen. First, someone's praying. We saw that in Luke 1, Zechariah uh, praying in the temple, uh, waiting, and the angel reveals to him. Here, Simeon is going to speak a, a prayer of blessing over Mary. And he's in a posture of waiting for the Messiah in prayer. The second thing that always happens in the temple is salvation for all people get announced. Right, so Simeon says, this child will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And glory for your people Israel. This Messiah, this child is for all people. Salvation for all people. And that is, of course, what... Simeon says he's been waiting for, the consolation of Israel. So what's that? What is the consolation of Israel? Well, the word consolation, it's just the Greek word paraklesis, and all that means is, is comfort or encouragement. And most commentators point out Luke or, or Simeon is, is imagining the chap, last chapters of Isaiah, where the word comfort shows up again and again and again. Isaiah envisions God's salvation as God's comfort coming to his people. God's going to comfort his people. So I just want to read three selections from Isaiah. There's many, but I'm going to just pick out three. that Describe the salvation of God coming into his people as comfort. Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy, O heaven, and exult. O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people. 
and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 51.3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving in the voice of song. And last one, Isaiah 66.13, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So this vision of salvation is given by the prophet Isaiah as one of comfort to afflicted people. And Simeon is saying, we are afflicted as God's people, and his comfort is going to invade our world. And he's been waiting for that. And now it's come. What good news. God is coming to comfort his people. But that raises a question. Well, if this is good news, why, the, why is the gun on the wall? Right? Simeon says uh, to bless Mary, and then what he says doesn't really sound like a blessing. Right? He opens his mouth to bless, and then he says, this child will call the fall and rising, but the fall of many in Israel. This child will be a sword that will pierce through your soul, Mary and Joseph. And he's going to reveal what people really think. The things in their hearts that they try to keep concealed from other people, he's going to reveal those things. So how can comfort be so divisive? Let's imagine you come over to my house uh, later today, and I just want to make you as comfortable as possible. I say, just take, take the good spot on our couch where you can lay all the way out, get you a little Christmas blanket, make you some hot cocoa. Uh, I've got a, a new record player. I'll find your, what's your favorite Christmas album? Oh, I've got it. I throw it on the record player. And we're, I'm just trying to make you as comfortable as possible. And your response to all that to me would not be, how dare you? Don't you dare give me hot cocoa with a Christmas blanket over which I can put. No, like, comfort is not divisive, yet it is here. So why? Why is comfort divisive? Well, to answer that question, we have to fast forward to the last time we're in the temple with, with Jesus. And two things happen the last time Jesus is in the temple. And the first is Jesus goes into the court of the Gentiles the only place the temple Gentiles were allowed to go and pray and to worship God. And what he finds in there is, is commerce, is tables, is loud noise, no prayer, no place for the Gentiles. So if you were not a Jewish person in Jesus' day, you could not go into the temple and pray or worship and find peace. Because your only place had been taken up. And Jesus is angry at this. So he turns over the tables... And then he yells out a quotation from Isaiah 56. My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. You've shut out the Gentiles, Israel. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens, not surprisingly, this offends everybody. And so they ask Jesus the question, what authority do you have to do this? To tell us, we're the religious establishment. We've been put in place by God. How dare you question what we're doing? What is your authority on which you have to critique us? And Jesus tells them a story. It's a story of a vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard leaves for a long time, and so he places some people in charge, some tenants. Time comes for harvest, and not surprisingly, the owner, he wants some of the grapes and the wine the vineyard has produced. So he sends a servant to go get some grapes and wine from his own vineyard. The tenants beat the servant and send him away with nothing. 
This surprises the owner, so he sends a second servant because he wants some grape and some fruit. A second time, the tenants to the vineyard beat the servant and send him away with nothing. The owner, apparently very patient, does this a third time, and a third time the servant is beaten and sent away with nothing. So the owner asks himself this question. They keep beating my servants. What should I do? I know. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. So they send the son. He sends his own son to the vineyard. And the tenants see the son coming. And their response is, that's the heir. If we kill him, the vineyard's ours. And so they kill the son, thinking the vineyard is now theirs. And no one who's listening to this story has any question what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. You're just tenants to God's vineyard. And you've abused your power. And you're about to kill me. Everyone knows what's happening. And at this point, we understand the ominous signs of Simeon, the rifle on the wall, and who's going to shoot it. It's going to be God's own religious establishment. The people he had placed in in charge of the very temple uh, that was to be a house of prayer for all people on on his behalf. It's those people are going to kill God's own son. It's shocking. And we see their secret thoughts. People who read their Bibles, uh, prayed from their Bibles, said all the right things, actually their hearts wanted nothing to do with God. And so when God showed up among them, they took him out. That's the ominous sign from Simeon. That's who does the shooting. It's the religious establishment. Well, that then answers our second question. Well, who gets shot? And you probably knew at the beginning it was going to be Jesus because the story is well known at this point. Um, But let me defend the religious establishment for just a second. Before we say, how could they do that? Well, Jesus says something pretty shocking at the end of the parable of the vineyard. So after he says, the vineyard owner sends the son and they killed him. Then Jesus says this in Luke 20 verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them, the religious establishment, and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now let me translate what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the cornerstone to your life. And if you, don't do, if you don't agree with that, I'm going to crush you like a stone. Jesus said that. Either on the cornerstone to your life or on the stone that will crush you in the end. How would you respond to someone who said that to you? Hey, build your entire life on me or one day I'm going to come personally judge you into destruction. My guess is most of us would think that person is, 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 is not well. And even think about Jesus' own story, right? Luke 2, where does, where does this story begin? It's his very poor parents going to offer an offering in the temple to redeem him back to the Lord. This is not someone who's well-known. He's from a backwaters town. He has no education. He has no religious authority. And yet he's standing in front of the religious establishment now saying, build all of this on me 
or I will come back and personally judge you. Like, that's just, that's crazy. And I love the way that uh, Fleming Rutledge unpacks this reality. We need, to enter, we need to enter into the tension of this. Listen to how she describes this. A little lengthy quote, but, but listen. Here is a man who was born into a poor family, who went to no university, who owns nothing, has no bank account, no resume or portfolio, no job or house, no title or rank, a man who is about to be judged guilty and not fit to live by the highest religious and political tribunals of his time. And here he is saying that he is going to come again personally at the end of the world to determine the fates of all human beings who have ever been born. It should make our brains crunch just to think about it. This man, Jesus, is about to go on trial for his life before the judges of this world. But according to the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples that he himself is actually the judge. All the peoples of the world will be gathered before him. It will be one final, ultimate, conclusive trial of the world. And the crucified one will be the judge. And what's more, you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. And Jesus says, I will personally judge you at the end of history. So the religious establishment took the rifle off the wall and put an end to all that talk. And the question I want to invite you to answer is, well, what are you going to do with that kind of talk from Jesus? A man who says, build your whole life on me, or I will personally come at the end of the world to judge you. What are you going to do with that talk from Jesus? It's why Simeon said, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Because all of us, we, we can put on a front that, oh yeah, I care about the things of God, I, I, I want to be a good person, all that. But what, what is our hearts really desire. And the religious establishment of Jesus' day shows, while they talked a great game for God, their hearts had nothing to do with God. And if you look around the world, and frankly for the last 2,000 years, it continues to happen with religious establishments again and again and again. And my invitation to you, even this morning, if you're someone who doesn't go to church regularly or maybe stepped away from church because you've been so turned off by the way religious people act and live in the name of Jesus. Let me just say, well, that's kind of the heart of the gospel story. Is Jesus reveals the most religious people are the least interested in God. And that, that has been for many of us at times our experience of the world. But before we, we cast judgment on others, the question we have to wrestle with is, well, what would the, the thoughts of my heart reveal? The secrets of my heart were out on the table. What would, it, what, what would they say? What would, what would they be? My guess is no one wants that to happen. Let's keep them right where they belong, which, which is where no one can see them. And yet to, to put a small one on the table for myself. Um, Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is abundantly clear. The Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive my trespasses as I forgive those who have trespassed against me. You can't be a Christian and inhabit the world with a spirit of harsh, judgmental uh, criticism towards others. 
Right? You can't receive the eternal salvation from God and then go and hold grudges against other people. You can't. And Jesus' point there isn't to say, if you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you. The point is, if, you, if you've experienced the incredible forgiveness of God for all you've done, it's impossible to hold grudges against other people. And yet, we all know it's, it's, it's still possible. And so in my own uh, discipleship to Jesus now, I'm, I'm working through my own forgiving particular people who I know I'm supposed to forgive and I don't want to. And this is important because forgiveness doesn't mean, well, what they did doesn't matter. Or if people do really harmful or evil things, it's irrelevant. Just forget it and move on. That's not the teaching of forgiveness in the Bible. Yet the teaching on forgiveness in, in the Bible is I have to release the desire for revenge and, and to make them pay the way that they have made others pay. And I know those teachings. And I sense Jesus like coming in saying, Tim, forgive them because I've forgiven you. And the secret of my heart is no. And I'm left with a choice. Is Jesus the cornerstone on my life? Which means I have to take his teaching on forgiveness, not just seriously, but integrate it into the very, the very center of my being. Or do, do I fall on him, the stone, and get crushed because I will go to the grave a bitter, angry person? What would the thoughts of your hearts reveal? And so we know who did the shooting. It's the religious establishment. We know who got shot. It's Jesus. So why? Why did it happen? And there's a variety of reasons why. Um, but I, I want to focus in on, on the primary one is, is that, that we want our way, not God's. And the closer God gets to us in that condition, the more violence a response we give to him. See, it's easy when God is up in heaven doing his thing and I'm down here to say, I'm not going to forgive. But if Jesus were to, to get near to me, closer to me, saying, no, we have to deal with this now, then I can't avoid the problem anymore. We want our way and not God's. And yet there's a tension in this this passage. In verse 30, when Simeon says of the child, my eyes have seen your salvation, most commentators point out there's a verb tense change from what we've read all the way through Luke 1 at this point, or Luke 1 and 2. Most of Luke 1 and 10, it's always, I will see your salvation. This will happen. Future-oriented. But Simeon doesn't do that. My eyes have seen your salvation in this child. It's here. Salvation has broken in. So much so that Simeon says, now I can depart in peace. There's basically two things he could mean by that. One is he's referring to his own death. And I think that's what's most likely. Simeon's saying, I've kept watch for the Messiah. I've seen him. Now it's time for me to lay down in peace. Or the second thing, and I, I really think that Luke means both. The second thing Simeon could just mean is, is my watch has ended. I've been coming to the temple day after day, waiting, keeping watch for the, the coming salvation of the Lord. Now I've seen it. I don't have to come to the temple and keep watch anymore. The salvation has arrived. Whatever he means, his eyes saw the salvation of God. And that raises the, the question, well, how can this child be the judge... And the salvation. 
How can this child be the one who will personally judge me and yet also be my salvation? How does that work? And the answer is humanity judged the judge. We put him on the cross. And we should feel the weight of that as human beings. When God entered into our world, if the Christian story is true, when God entered into the world, we did not want anything to do with him. And we placed him on a cross. Killed both by the the best political power of the day and the best religious establishment of the day. The best human beings had to offer. Crucify the Son of God. Because we wanted our way and not his. And not to feel, uh, this is not to feel terrible about ourselves right before Christmas. But to actually see the light of Jesus. To see the judge took the judgment. He took our judgment so that we could have his salvation. Jesus is the most divisive person in history, but the thing we have to understand, that says more about us than it does about Jesus. Or as uh, John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, uh, said, we live on this planet like we came here by choice, are at the center of it, can do whatever we want with it without any accountability. So we, we live in this world with a lack of forgiveness, with anger towards those who see the world differently, with critical spirits and harsh judgments. We live in a way that Jesus would never want anyone to live. And so he comes to confront us in that. Hey, you don't have to be so angry. Hey, at the center of the universe is forgiveness and kindness and mercy and peace. At the center of the universe is the Son of God who will lay down his lives for other people. How about we come into that world, my world, instead? And we insist, yet, on living as if we are the center of the universe. And how many of us, that's what the secret of our hearts would reveal. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to live however I want. I'm going to say whatever I want. And Jesus comes into the world and says, that's not what the universe is like. You harm other people when you live like that. You harm yourself when you live like that. The world is not built on me being at the center. At the center of the, ju- of the universe is the judge who took the judgment for you. The judge who, while he was on this earth, didn't even act like he was the center of the universe. Was born into poverty, lived in a backwaters village, lived in obscurity, let the, the most powerful people of his day crucify him on a cross, though he had the power to put an end to it all. He came as a child, went to a cross, so that you could see what your heart is really like. Intent on yourself. And for Jesus to to invite you out of that way of being and into the way the world is meant to be lived. And so Christmas is the invitation of Jesus saying to you, Hey, why don't you take my comfort and I'll take your judgments. Why don't I take your sins so you can have my healing? Why don't you lay down your your self-centered vision of life and enter into the way of my kingdom, which says, my life for you, the Son of God for sinners. And when I see that, when you see that, how can I not become a person of radical forgiveness? When you see that, how could you not become a person who says, yes, you be the cornerstone of my life? Let me pray. Father, may we hear the words from Simeon, these ominous words of what will play out in Jesus' life. Not as an an ancient story irrelevant to us, 
but is the thing that best describes our human condition. Our thoughts and hearts lead us far from you. And yet you sent your son into this world to seek and to save the lost. So now, may we, may we lay down our self-centered visions of the world and embrace the message of Christmas. The Son of God, a child, born to take our judgment uh, to, to offer us his healing, his hope, his comfort. God, may we experience your comfort now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.